Shameless Media. This episode of The Shameless Book Club is brought to you by Audible, the home of storytelling. Download the Audible app and start listening today. Hello and welcome to The Shameless Book Club. Today, we are bringing you an interview between domestic thriller novelist Sally Hepworth and Shameless Media's content coordinator, Sahani Gunatilika. Sally is a New York Times best-selling author who has sold over one million books worldwide. She's written eight novels, including The Good Sister, The Younger Wife and The Mother-in-Law. The latter has very excitingly been optioned for a TV show by Amy Poehler. Sally's latest novel, Darling Girls, comes out today. And it follows three women who are drawn back to their past after bones are discovered under the farmhouse from their childhood. I will leave a link to grab yourself a copy in the show notes because you simply must. In this chat, Sally speaks about realising she wanted to transition from HR to writing novels during maternity leave, what inspires Sally to include such a wide spectrum of neurodiverse characters in her books, and what Sally makes sure to end every one of her chapters with. Alrighty, that is enough from me. I hope you guys enjoy this interview. It was a joy to edit and to listen to. Here is Sahani and Sally. Hi, Sally. Hello. Welcome to the Shameless Book Club. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we're so excited to have you here because Zara and I have been longtime fans of your work. And Mish just recently read The Soulmate and is currently reading your newest novel, Darling Girls, and is loving it. Oh, I love hearing that. <laughs> so we've like discovered, well, I've recently discovered that a whopping seven of your books are New York Times bestsellers. And I wanted to ask you, do you remember where you were when you first found out, like for the very first time, that you were a bestselling author? Yes, I was at home and I got the news because it, it's Wednesday night in the States, Thursday morning for us here in Australia. And I think it was something like 4 or 5 a.m. that it ticked over. And I knew that there was a chance that it was oh. going to be on. I didn't sleep that well. And then finally, I looked at my phone at about quarter past five when I woke up and I had all these missed calls. And then both my agent and my editor rang me and I was there and they were on the FaceTime, which was devastating because, oh. you know, my hair was all white. I was in my <laughs> dressing gown. and, and uh, <laughs> But it was it was so cool. And, That's and, so and exhilarating. Yeah, so you kind of moment. expected it. I had a little bit of a heads up, not that anyone mm-hmm. knows because no one knows for sure, but but they do tend to get a bit of an idea, the publishers, if they can see the kind of pre-orders that can give them oh, yeah. an indication that it, it might make the yeah. list. But it really depends on who else releases a book that week. You know, if you get mm. someone like Stephen King and a whole <laughs> lot of them, then you get pushed down the list. Yeah. Um, but that one was the first one where I, I thought I was in with a chance and indeed it did come through. It was very cool. That is so cool. So from my understanding, before you became a writer full-time, you worked in HR and event management full-time? I did. So how did you get into writing then? Did you dabble in it already? It's your Hindsight is twenty twenty, And now all of my friends, my mum and dad, and most people that I knew when I was younger say, well, it was obvious that you were going to become a writer. And I always say, well, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> when I was working in HR um, mm. and because I, I did always love to write and, and I had quite a few 
pieces published in both the school magazines and university magazines. It was always an interest. And then I think HR really came to me because I like the gossip and I like to know how much everyone yeah. was paid, um, <laughs> which is still something that kind of finds its way through that kind of gossipy interest in people, uh, finds its way through to the books. But um, it, it wasn't until I was on maternity leave or about to go on maternity leave with my son, who's now 14, 14. I, I thought, oh, maybe I could write a whole book. Maybe that's something I can do on mm. maternity leave, forgetting that I'd have an actual baby to look after. Mm. But I did. That I did I, that year, you know, when my baby slept and I call him my robot baby because a lot of new mothers hear that and say, I just managed to stay alive. You know, <laughs> I couldn't write a shopping list in that first year. And I definitely couldn't have done it with my second or my third child, but mm. my son was this wonderful little robot baby that would just go down to a nap for three hours every <laughs> afternoon and I would sit down and I would write, you know, without much idea of what I was doing. That but sounds like a dream. I just got a new nephew and I'm like, I don't oh. I don't think that's gonna happen with him. <laughs> <laughs> Look it, it and it's it took well, I did it that year. It was the world's worst book. I mean, honest to God oh, no, it, don't it say ended that. up being published in German only and it was published only in the German language which was the greatest gift because (laughs) people can't read it and sometimes people will say I've got a German friend or you know my mum's German or Mm. and I'm like don't buy it (laughs) don't read it it was a gift in a way because I had that you know on a very small level the ability to be published but that first book really was a it was a learner book I Mm. think And it was my third book. So I then wrote another book that ended up in the drawer, which a lot of writers will say that that wasn't published. And my third book was The Secrets of Midwives. And Mm. that was the first, that's what I call my first book. Because it was the first one to be published in in English and around the world. I was going to say that's so nice to hear because I feel like I cringe at like work that I've written ages ago. So to hear Sally Hepworth also cringes. Everyone does. Everyone does. There's some very generous authors out there who will publish a on social media or on their website a page from their first draft and just to show people. And I've often thought I should do because I. I have no shame. Like I'd be very happy to do it for the encouragement because I would have loved to have seen something like that mm. earlier. But I don't tend to keep – like I keep editing them, so I don't tend to have that first page. Mm-hmm. And so I'm starting a new book now, so I should have a screenshot or something of that <laughs> a really crappy first page. Yeah, I think to, that's a great like thing to add. Yeah, And I guess like that book did put you on the radar and like has set you up for success. So we can't hate on that book too much. <laughs> So what I have noticed about your books from the very beginning is that they've sort of transitioned from domestic fiction to domestic thriller with like more themes of like suspense and mystery. Was that transition intentional? I mean, very little about what I do is intentional. (laughs) (laughs) I have someone asked me recently when I was on tour in the States, you know, what's your strategy around social media? And I was (laughs) like, have you seen my social media (laughs) strategy? Oh, my goodness. It's funny because people do talk about that kind of switch. The first three, The Secrets of Midwives, The Things We Keep and The Mother's Promise were fairly squarely in the genre of women's fiction. Mm. And then with The Family Next Door, which was book four, it had a crime in it. Mm. And it was at that point that people 
called them thrillers or domestic suspense. I found it shelved in crime in a bookstore and I thought, wow, this is so, I'm nowhere near cool enough to write crime. <laughs> and I didn't realise that's what it was, but it, it was that suspenseful element and, and a crime that kind of made that pivot. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it was the mother-in-law that involved a dead body. Mm. And since then, there have been dead bodies in most of my books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as most kind of authors say, anything to do with health or death, the stakes are really high. So it's a wonderful thing to, for an author to be able to play with. But I also think that my background in more straight women's fiction helps to create deeper characters, mm. relationships, as well as that suspenseful mm. piece. It's and, like the best of both worlds. Well, I hope, I mean, I never call them thrillers. My go-to description is family dysfunctionality with a dash of murder. <laughs> a dash of murder. <laughs> so, um, and, and a bit of humour and, you know, yeah. so I, I kind of think it's a genre unto itself. Mm. So, yeah, like another theme is the dysfunctional families. Is there something that draws you to those themes? I mean, life, right? Mm. And I grew up with a mum who was constantly telling us that we were very dysfunctional. <laughs> and it wasn't until years later I realised that we were actually pretty functional, <laughs> very functional. Compared to the characters, you're right, for sure. <laughs> I know. Every family has got their things and oh, every family has sure. the potential to get a book plot going. <laughs> Another theme that comes up a lot as well is, well, I don't know if this is so much a theme, but the wide spectrum of neurodiverse characters you have in your book, I would say in most of the books that I've read, there have been quite a few. What inspired you to write those characters? It's true. I've actually looked back and and some of those characters I've done unwittingly and other times have been kind of intentional. And, mm. and the reason unwittingly is that I write about characters that exist in the world and, mm. you know, neurodiverse people exist in the world. And so, of course, they appear in my books in the same way that hopefully all diversity appears mm. in terms of, you know, sexuality, skin colour, different preferences. So for that reason, of course, they appear. When it comes to The Good Sister, for example, the heroine of the book, Fern, is a autistic librarian. Mm -hmm. And I remember going into that book with a real reason behind that. And and I come from a neurodiverse family. I have ADHD. Mm -hmm. Um, I have two kids on the spectrum and with ADHD. And I really was noticing that while there are books and really well-written, great books written about people on the spectrum, for example, often by people who are on the spectrum, I was seeing a lot of sidekicks, you know, mm, and or sure. they were the main character, but the story was about them coming to terms with them being on the spectrum or their family coming to terms with mm. it. What I wanted to see more of and what I want my kids to see more of and, and other people's kids too, you know, so mm-hmm. we all can see people on the spectrum just existing and facing their own challenges that have nothing to do with them being on the spectrum. It's not the centre of it. No, because that just is. Mm -hmm. And yes, it has its challenges, but people on the spectrum also have challenges in relationships. Mm -hmm. And if someone close to them is murdered, which is often the case in my (laughs) book, and I didn't want it to be the butt of a joke. You know, I wanted a really kick-ass autistic heroine who the the most interesting thing about her was not that she's autistic but that she was a great librarian and that she was beloved by the community and that she was a great sister and I've started to see more books doing that mm. um, and I just I wanted to be part of it as as someone with a bit of skin in the game. No I love that. So we've kind of covered that it's like 
a lot of your books have had elements of dysfunctional families and also suspense and mystery. Since you keep writing storylines like this, do you find it hard to keep getting that same inspiration to write more? No, I constantly have ideas. Um, Mm. Life is great like that. (laughs) What I do struggle with, the more books I write and also the more authors I know and become friendly with and the more books that are written is that I'll come up with an idea and then I'll think, oh, I did that three books ago Mm. or Jane Harper just did that or Leanne Moriarty just did that or I was away a couple of weeks ago at Guingana, which is a health retreat and, you know, you can't go to one of those without thinking this is the most amazing set for a novel, you yeah. know, set up. But of course, you know, Nine Perfect Strangers. I was, just, I was just thinking that when you said <laughs> and, that as well. <laughs> and Leanne, of course, will do a better job with it than anyone else. And, <laughs> and so my problem is not the ideas. It's more trying to resolve storylines in interesting and new ways. But in a sense, nothing is ever really new. I mean, there's just fresh takes on an old idea isn't there at this mm. point. Most things have been done. But in fact, having that exact challenge with the book that I'm writing right now? How do I make this fresh? Oh, can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> I don't think I can yet. Not, oh, not, damn. I, I, I had to try. <laughs> I, I have to perfect that one a little bit more. And I also, I get a little bit nervous talking about it too early because it can take some of the magic out. Yeah, that's so fair. But mm. soon I'll tell you. So you mentioned Leanne. Yes. <laughs> and I want to ask this question a bit carefully because I know a lot of the book club hosts always are quite careful not to group female writers together. If but... you want to group me with Leanne, <laughs> I will be extremely happy. I remember hearing Leanne say when she was interviewed once that someone called her, and I'm pretty sure it was the next Maeve Binchy mm-hmm. she kept hearing, and she said, I feel a little uncomfortable about that because I can only ever be the, you know, the second best in theory, Maeve Binchy, mm. but I can be the best Leanne Moriarty. And when I was compared to Leanne Moriarty, I started to say that. And then I said, you know what, that's fine. You can put me, <laughs> I'm happy to be the second best or, you know, even the hundredth best Leanne Moriarty. I'll mm. take that one. <laughs> So I'm interested in your process as well, since you and Leanne are both prolific. How long does it take you to come up with ideas and like how long did it take you to like write your most recent book? The ideas part has evolved a little bit. I mean, I can come up with an idea in a few seconds. And and mm. of course, that's the large premise. So that's the a mother-in-law is murdered and all of her family are under suspicion. You know, that mm. sentence will come to me in a minute. That's my book, The Mother-in-Law. <laughs> I was just trying to pluck one out of my head. Yeah. And then the challenge is to go deep and say, well, how did that happen? And why is everyone under suspicion? And you just sort of have to flesh it out and see what's there, not just plot-wise, but is there anything interesting there to kind of uncover about in that case, relationships between mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law or whatever it may be. So ideas are easy. And in the old days, the olden days, as my kids say when they're talking about their grandma, um, they come up with that, I'd flesh it out, and then I could kind of start writing more or less. Mm. But the further I've come along, the more input I have with my editors and publishers at that idea stage, Mm. which is a good and a bad thing. It's a good thing in that I get a whole lot of soundboarding up front that probably saves me time at the other end, you know, because I'll just go off half cocked with some idea and then get halfway through and think, shit. (laughs) 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 So it it helps me in that way. But in another way, I hate that stage because Mm. 
I want to just take my idea and write it and see, even though I do plot to a certain extent, I want to, like I said before, I don't want to reveal too much. I don't know yet. Mm. And I want to kind of trust the process a little bit. So your characters evolve as you write. They do. Yeah, Yeah, they do for me, but certainly for a lot of writers, it's the other way around, Mm. except with now that I've written nine, ten books. That's insane. (laughs) You say it so casually. It's such a big deal. I I mean, it's cool now. It's cool (laughs) to reflect on that. But it's very cool. I find it harder to talk about my process in the sense that you can ask a first-time writer how to write a novel and I would have told you, I would have sat you down and said, this is how you do it. You plot and you have to have these turning points and you start with character or you start with plot or and here's how you do it. And by book three, I was a little bit more, I mean, you could do it that way, but this last one I did this bit a little bit different. That sounds like the way people talk about their kids. The first oh. one is so planned and then it just goes. <laughs> it's a lot like that. In fact, now I think because my youngest is six and she's just raised by the wolves, which is kind <laughs> of like the wolves. In the, it, I have to, as I say, have that fleshing out conversation with my publishers, but then I go rogue because <laughs> there is the discovery. And Well, your books keep getting better, so you must be oh. doing something right. I hope so. And, and like the children, every one of them's a little bit different. And, and with, with The Good Sister, I started with Fern as a character, which mm. is usually I start more with plot. With Darling Girls, my newest book, I really clearly saw the character of Nora. She came to me in a moment. I and love I, Nora. I do. <laughs> She's such a badass. I, I loved her too. And mm. I felt like I really knew her from the moment I started writing, whereas mm. Jessica and Alicia took longer at, at the beginning, and this is often the case, talking heads until mm. I get about halfway through and then I think, oh, no, they wouldn't do that and I get to know them. By the end, mm. I have to go straight back to the beginning and, and massage them to who I now know them to be. Yeah. Um, so, again, like I, I wish I could say I start with character or I mm. start with plot, but they're all just a bit different. Guys, as you know, we love listening to audiobooks here at Shameless, which is why I love that we are partnering with Audible for today's episode. Audible allows you to listen to your favorite audiobooks, podcasts, and Audible originals hands-free, which is so great if you're time poor like I am. I have been loving putting Audible on while I drive to work in the morning or when I'm working out at the gym. It's just such a great way to keep myself entertained while I am busy doing my day-to-day stuff. The range of titles that Audible has in their library is unlike anything else. From Atomic Habits by James Clear to I'm Glad My Mum Died by Jeanette McCurdy to Spare by Prince Harry or Oh Miriam by Miriam Margoyles. I love that you can have the story read to you in the voice of the author. It makes the listening experience so much more impactful. As you know from this episode, we are big Sally Hepworth fans, so I was excited to hear that her latest release, Darling Girls, has just dropped on Audible. The story is all about sisterhood, secrets, love and murder, so you know it's one that will keep you entertained. Audible has a fantastic collection of audiobooks available, so if you're in need of some hands-free entertainment, start listening today. Download the Audible app to listen to Darling Girls now. Thanks so much to Audible for making this episode of the Shameless Book Club possible.
So, darling girls, Mm -hmm. I read it last weekend and I wasn't expecting to read it in one weekend. And I took it everywhere with me. As you can probably tell, it's completely battered on the desk right now. Which is the highest (laughs) compliment I was saying before. It's I love a battered book and I love people who doggy the pages and, you know, get it wet in the bath. Like that's as an author. Oh, yeah, there's definitely some wet pages in there. I love that. And so a central theme in this one is the foster care system. I know you've wrote about it in The Good Sister as well, like you've touched on it. Yeah. Was there a particular inspiration for that in this book? Yeah, there were a couple of, I mean, the main overarching themes of my book are family relationships. And again, with each book, you start to think, well, what's, I've done this one, I've done that one, mm. what relationship's going to come next? And I often feel at the risk of sounding airy-fairy, which I'm really not. I'm quite a pragmatic, you know, hard-nosed Australian woman. But I do feel that there's a little bit of magic in how you're served up these ideas. So I had in my mind, well, I haven't done foster care Mm. um, and I'm interested in non-biological relationships and the difference between them and a blood relationship and the importance Mm -hmm. of blood. I knew of a woman who's a friend of a friend who was fostering some children. And I was so fascinated and hungry for these stories that the mutual friend would tell about the way that these children were connecting Mm. with her and also disconnecting and, and the troubles. Like I was just really drawn to it. And then separate from that, I read a news article that had come out. It was from the States and it was about a little girl who had been in foster care. I think it was more unofficial foster care than, because I'm not sure that this would happen in the real world, but in this case, she had been looked after by a woman and at three years old or five years old, she had gone missing. And it had taken quite a long time for this little girl to be even registered as missing. Mm. But there's a family member that noticed and then the police came in and the foster mother said, oh, I I gave her to a, you know, she went to live with this other couple. And this other couple Mm. had never been found, but neither was the woman charged, you know. And so there was this missing child, which on its own, I mean, that's an interesting topic for a book. Mm. It's heartbreaking as a human being to think about that in the foster system that a little tiny child can Mm. fall between the cracks and no one's looking for her. You know, it was just accepted. No crime could be proven. Mm. And so we didn't know what happened to her. And and the news article was because she had been found or she had noticed a story in the newspaper and she thought that girl looks like me and she didn't know her backstory. And at age 25, they joined the dots. And in fact, she had grown up somewhere else with a a loving family, Mm. but they were able to sort of put that story together. And that isn't the story of Darling Girls, but that came to me when I'd already had an interest in foster care. Mm -hmm. I was looking for a sort of familial relationship to write about. And I then put a call out on social media to see if any adult women who had grown up in foster care would be interested in speaking with me. And I, again, not certain that this was going to be the book, but just to see what came. I spoke to a dozen women, most of them foster children back in the 80s and 90s, a couple of foster mothers and a social worker. Mm. And so much came out of those interviews. 
every story different, every story heartbreaking, but every single foster child, adult now, use the word lucky. Mm. And that blew... That's definitely a theme in this. <laughs> yeah, and that became the essence of the book because what mm. blew my mind about it was that I mean, in a way, you could look at that and say, well, that's why they have survived because they chose a good attitude. But my take on it was you weren't lucky, even in the least tragic circumstance where one of the women had been, uh, her mother had died, that she didn't have any other family, she was taken in by a good family. The least tragic. Yeah, yeah. In the least tragic, Mm. she was talking about how she was lucky, but she'd lost her parents at mm. a really young age. That is an unlucky, both parents, mm. that's an unlucky story. And at the other end, there were women who were saying they were lucky because they were only sexually abused a couple of times mm. or because they were able to be in foster care with their biological sibling or because they were, you know, not physically abused. You know, there were just all of them experienced something that was so much less than what every child deserves, you know, what is every child's basic human right to have a house where they feel safe, to have clothes, to have love. And I almost think there's something detrimental about being made to feel lucky for having that. And Mm. and that really, not from a plot perspective, but that became a cornerstone of what the book was about. Yeah, for sure. Do you do the same level of research for other books that you've written? Sometimes. It really depends on the book for example, The Things We Keep, which was my second book, was about a woman with early onset Alzheimer's. And in that case, there was a lot of research, mostly speaking to people, doctors, families of people with Alzheimer's, some people with Alzheimer's, really trying to understand the brain. That was a really research-heavy book. Other books like The Mother-in-Law, most people, it, and I loved the the universality of that book and that, you know, it really crossed cultural and everyone knows about people having issues with their, <laughs> yeah, for their sure. across the, you know, it's universal. But um, there were pieces of that that I had to do research for. There was mm. an element that involved voluntary euthanasia that I went to a, a meeting for, which is a really, mm. really, in- some of the, the research I do is really interesting, some mm. of it less so. Books like The Good Sister, again, it was an autistic librarian and both of those things are very familiar to me. And I did actually, I did a little bit of research for different things, but it depends on the book. When you're taking on something sensitive and Alzheimer's, of course, foster care, of course, you have to do it right. And mm. and every author I know, and by right, it's not that you can't make a mistake, but you need to take it on with the gravity that it deserves mm. and do your best to not cause harm yeah. and to accurately portray, you know, you can't phone that stuff in. Mm. And so that's kind of where I tend to focus my reason. And obviously autism is one and, and that if with the good sister, I'm already familiar with that world. And so I wasn't needing to do that, but I certainly would have if I hadn't been. Mm. I think the reason I've flown through Darling Girls like so quickly and also like your other books as well, I think it's because of the way you build suspense. Like I just need to get to the next chapter, especially with this one, the way it was set out was each chapter was written from a different character's perspective. And I was like, oh, I want to get to Nora (laughs) and things like that. Yeah, I'm Um, glad you love Nora. (laughs) She's my favourite too. Yeah. So I wanted to ask for emerging writers that might be listening what do you think is the key to a good plot twist and the key to building suspense? That's a great question. 
I did an interview this morning with another author, Sarah Pekkanen, who's an American author, and I asked her this question. <laughs> and uh, and she was talking about how she always writes in multiple points of view, like I do, switching mm. around. And she had recently written a book where she had just used one point of view. And she found that to be a huge challenge because mm. you develop a, a style of writing. And in my case and in her case, using multiple characters gives you so many options to leave something on a cliffhanger that does make people wait because Mm. then you go into someone else's perspective and it gives you an ability to use time lapses and and various things. So I think that structure has an inbuilt suspense sometimes. Mm -hmm. But that's not easy to do. Like I've read lots of multiple point of view books and I get so confused sometimes. Do you? Yeah, because I think there's like so much going on and I don't remember. But I find with your books, they're all quite interconnected that I just remember. (laughs) And I don't know what you put in them, but it definitely works. I think some of my books are better than others at that. And I, and I, that's again, something that has evolved, like if their timelines and their relationships are really connected, as with Darling Girls, there's three sisters, but they're all pretty much in each other's chapters as well. So and you're, they're so distinct as well. They're very distinct. Yeah. And so you're following along and also it's fun because you can give the reader information about a character that that character doesn't have about themselves through someone else's perspective. So I love writing like that. That said, I have written books that have just had one perspective and and you manage to do it mostly in a way that for some reason, I don't know if someone told me this or if I read it in a book or if I just started doing it, I always end a a chapter with a surprise and it's usually a surprise to me, (laughs) which is why I'm a terrible plotter because I might have it in mind, but I don't like a chapter that ends with and then they shut the taxi door and went off for a day shopping or, you know, you want to have this scene that feels like it's about to end Mm. and then Steve walked in, you know, and Steve's a bad guy or whatever. Like it just, it's such an easy, sharp sentence that just turns the whole thing on its head. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love to read and that's what I love to do. And I'm a storyteller. Like even before I wrote books, I love to tell stories orally and entertain people and make them laugh and and shock value is very fun in that way Mm. so I don't know is the real answer (laughs) that was a lot of stuff to say this is what I try to do and I'm glad that you think so so when you unveil a twist when you write it are you also unveiling it to yourself then often yeah that's so cool even though with some books again it's about always different Mm. with the mother-in-law is the closest I've had to following the path that I'd set out so the person that I thought did it did it and in general while I discovered more things as I wrote it followed the synopsis Mm. the others some of them have not even resembled the synopsis whatsoever you know they're almost a completely different book but in almost all of them by the time I've got to the end and the resolution as it were I kind of think a little bit like that last sentence in a chapter, I want something else, you know, I mm. want to like, I want to sting in the tail. And that one almost always comes to me at the end. I don't know what it is. I can't plan that. It often, it almost always surprises me when I just um, write that last chapter. And mm. and then that's why I have to do lots of editing because then I have to go back and say, does that make sense actually with the rest? No, not this bit. No, not this bit. And, you know, you you go again. So what do you want readers to take away from your books? I mean, there are different specific things from each book, of course. Mm -hmm. In general, one thing I love 
about books, podcasts, social media, life at the moment mm-hmm. is that people are showing more. And I know Instagram and things gets a tough job here and people say they project their best lives and people are seeing things as they're not. But this wave of vulnerability and being mm-hmm. honest about the things that perhaps we wouldn't have, certainly when I was, and I'm 43, when I was at school, I wouldn't have said things to my friends or admitted things that I hear young girls admitting to their friends now. Or I hope, I know that there are still troubles in the world, but I hope that there is that kind of sense of shame that's lifted from people. And and I feel like when I do create a character, maybe like Nora, maybe like Fern in, in The Good Sister, like any of them, and, and show their vulnerabilities and their their nasty thoughts, even though you kind of like them, mm. and their parental shame or the things that they've done wrong. That does something to me when I read things like that. If I see myself in those thoughts and I still like that person, it almost mm. in a way makes me still like myself. And so mm. I've heard people say that to me, that they've felt seen or they've understood someone else in their lives. And, and that's the biggest compliment for sure. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) I quite like that. (laughs) But also I want them to be entertained because that ultimately that's my reason for being is is to entertain people. And if I'm doing that, well, that's good too. So I've got a quick fire round. (laughs) I mean, we can edit this. If you want to think think a bit longer, we can. Yep. So the first question is, this is kind of easy. What are you currently reading? Anne of Green Gables. Oh, a classic. I know. I, I read it before, but it's got a, this is the only thing I can tell you about the book that I'm working on now. It's got <laughs> a an undercurrent of Anne of Green Gables. Oh. Um, the, the character in it loves the book as I did growing okay. up. And there's a couple of little parallels and it's really interesting to read. It's quite a wordy book and very old fashioned in its writing. And mm. yeah, I'm loving it. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Do you often reread books or was it no, just for No, never. It oh, was, okay. it's, it's for the book. Yeah. But it's different to, I remember. And yeah. Okay. Next question. Roughly how many books do you read every year? Oh, Oh, we can do last year. I would, well, I don't track them. You know, I often see people with those, you know, they're keeping track, at least a book a week. So probably 52, maybe more, like some weeks it would be more. I would say, yeah, 50-ish, maybe more. Uh, you know, then there's, the, of course, research books and things, which I don't always read the whole lot of. Mm. I might skim them. 50 52? or 60, something okay. like that. Well, I feel like you'll be able to answer this next question well then. <laughs> what book would you recommend to a friend going through a hard time? Oh, I mean, I may in that case, depending on it might be a nonfiction, mm. but I've really recommended Untamed by Glennon Doyle to a lot oh, of yeah. people and my friends give me so much shit for it because Why? <laughs> I'm I mean and, and as women we're so many things aren't we but yeah. I'm usually quite known as being quite cynical and it's obviously mm. a very indulgent <laughs> and fantastic book and and it's sort of my chicken soup you know as people mm. are going through anything and I'm like read untamed um but I will also tell people to read The Invention of Wings by Sue Monk Kidd mm. um that's a great one the, the Secret Life of Bees which is also by Sue Monk Kidd, anything by Leon Moriarty, Jane Harper. But I have a sort of pride in finding the right book for the right person. Mm-hmm. And so I'll often say to friends, they'll say, oh, I saw this book on your Instagram. Should I read that? And not I'll you. Say, not you, no. <laughs> you, yes. You, no. Yeah, I've got yeah, another one same. for you. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I think that's the only way to give recommendations. Yes, I agree. Last question. What book do you think deserves more hype than it gets? So many. <laughs> there is a book called The One and Only Dolly Jamison, which came out earlier this year. It's by writer Lisa Island, who's a friend of mine, and it is one of the most gripping books that I have read. Mm-hmm. And it did get hype, but I think it deserves more. And it's one that I'm constantly recommending. Adding that to my TBR. <laughs> yeah, it's all of her books are wonderful. I think that one was a real standout. I'm going to be forgetting. And yeah, there's another one, The Way From Here by Jane Cockrum, another Australian author mm-hmm. um, that is probably my other go-to recommendation that more people need to read. And I haven't met a person who hasn't loved it oh love yeah well that's all i've got okay thank you so much for coming on the podcast my pleasure thank you for inviting me and everyone go read darling girls (laughs) (laughs) and tell me if you like nora Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Shameless Book Club. As you know, The Shameless Book Club drops all kinds of content, author interviews just like this one, book reviews, and our new series, Stranger Than Fiction. The last Stranger Than Fiction episode we dropped was one called The Author Who Was Fact-Checked Live On Air. In that episode, host Eilish Gilligan told Michelle Andrews all about Naomi Wolf, the author of The Beauty Myth and feminist icon turned anti-vaxxer. To get that episode and so much more in your feeds, click follow. That really helps us reach more people and grow the show. You can also follow us on socials by searching for The Shameless Book Club on Instagram and on TikTok. Bye! This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.